Yo, 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 this is Oz, host and founder of Salinas Underground Podcast. And this is Claudia Melendez Salinas, co-founder of Voices of Monterey Bay. If you've been paying attention, you probably noticed that we've teamed up with Voices of Monterey Bay to bring you some political coverage. So far, we've interviewed supervisor candidates Steve McShane and Wendy Root Askew, and Salinas City Council candidates Carla Viviana Gonzalez and Anthony Rocha. We have much more on tap. This week, we've interviewed mayoral candidates Chris Barrera and Kimberly Craig and District 6 candidate Vanessa Robinson. This experiment of us will continue for the next few weeks or until the election arrives. We don't know whatever comes first. Let us know what you think. Send us an email or find us on Twitter or Facebook. And now, without further ado. All right, now we're sitting here with Vanessa Robinson, who's running for Salina City Council in the 6th District. Welcome, Vanessa. Thank you for having me. Welcome, Vanessa. Thank you for having me. Excited. Yeah. Excited to do this. No, this, this is going to be fun. Yeah. It's, it's, it's been such a fun series so far. I look forward to it. But the first and the only question that stays the same is who are you and why did you decide to run? Great question. I mean, it's probably going to be a long-winded answer. That's just me in a nutshell. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so I am a fourth-generation Salinan. Uh, not Selena in the native tribe, but from Selena, right? <laughs> when we talk about what is that called, right? It's Selena. the acorn flower. Right? It was <laughs> delicious. <laughs> from Selena, um, born and raised. My mom is from the south side of Selena. She went graduated from Selena's high school. Um, my grandpa owned Service Off back in the day. He sold that to Culligan. So usually when people are like, what is service off? I'm like, it used to be over there off of uh, John Street work, somewhere over there. Uh, it was like one of the old school water service off plants. Like I remember going growing up and there was those huge deep pools in a garage and it was like where they filtered water and created the softeners. And yeah. it at the time it wasn't anything fascinating to me. But when I think back, I'm like, whoa, that was a huge thing, right? Um, so he sold that to Culligan, and I'm like, you guys see those buses? Like, hey, Culligan, man. Like, that's <laughs> where that came from in the city and on the buses. Um, so that's my mom's side of the family. My dad's side of the family is, man, my great-grandma came here from Texas. Um, her and my great-grandfather bought a home on Cabrillo Street on the north side and raised their family there. My great-grandma had 21 children. Um, Damn. Yeah, 17 21. live births. 17 live births. Mm-hmm. 21 children. Mm-hmm. Whoa. My granny is the oldest of those 21. And uh, her and all her siblings averaged about eight kids. So it just kind of gives you the scope of how large yeah. that side of the family is. Um, I think my dad has like 192 first cousins. And at the time of my great grandma's passing, when she was ninety six, uh, we ha- I had three hundred and thirty two second cousins, because we totally did the math for the the. Obituary. How many got together? Um, it was capacity for sure, and it was capacity pre COVID. So that is like a big deal, right? Like yeah. everything reaches capacity these days, but that was a big deal for then, right? Um, yeah, so humongous family on the north side here. Um, so I, I feel like uh, I come from a background of definitely very mixed um, economic statuses and, and circumstances, right? My mom has one brother, one sister. Her sister had no children. Her brother had three. They lived in Carmel Valley. So really at my grandparents' house, it was just me and my sisters on my mom's side. And then on my dad's side, it was like everybody and everybody's sisters. And so it was really cool. Like I, I definitely think uh, my upbringing here in Salinas on both sides 
right? Uh, really well-rounded me for just life in general. Yeah. Um, at the time, did I understand that's where I was leading into? Not at all. Uh, but now, do I appreciate it? Absolutely. Um, and so, yeah, my mom, rem- I went to, okay, a million schools as well. Uh, <laughs> I went to Monterey Park, Mission Park, and then we moved to the north side. Um, when I was in fifth grade, I went to Camden for fifth and sixth. And then I was a busser into Washington Middle School for middle school. Oh, damn. Yes. And then I applied for an interdistrict to Salinas High. Didn't get it. <laughs> so I went to North High for freshman year. And then my mom remarried. And my stepdad's from Seaside. So we moved to Seaside. They owned a home there. Uh, so I went to Monterey High my sophomore, junior, and senior year. And I graduated from Monterey High School. Go Toreadors. Toreadors. <laughs> yeah. And that was actually really interesting for me. It was it was definitely a culture shock. Like that whole period, I think, of my life. Just growing up in Salinas with kind of understanding like just the demographics and the dynamics of the city and then my family, right? I kind of knew how to operate between everything. Like, you know, my mom's white. Caucasian, my dad's African American, so that adds to the socioeconomical, socioeconomical diversity, but then also cultural diversity. So, kind of code switching between those two cultures on the weekend. Um, but then the schools that I went to were predominantly Hispanic. There was many yeah. times my whole entire life I was absolutely the only African American girl, which that's what I was to you know the world. You can't um, call me white, right? like damn, call me the white part. It, it wasn't. It was never, <laughs> you know. And so that was always a thing too, and. Um, but it was cool. I, I guess that actually helped me like not really identify with anything, not really spend too much time focusing on race in any capacity. Because mm-hmm. for me, I felt like, what does that mean? It was always kind of a yeah. mirage for me where everybody wanted me to fit in some box. And I didn't I was both and I didn't know I was supposed to declare one. Um, and then all my friends were entirely different. So it was just awesome. Like, I just thought that's how things were. Right. Um, I moved to Seaside, where I lived was predominantly African-American, so that was new for me as well. Um, And then when I went to Monterey High, I lived on the side of Seaside, where before Marina High existed, one half of Seaside and Marina went to Seaside High, and one half of Seaside and Monterey went to Monterey High. So it was, yes. (laughs) And so the day I moved there, I'm like, I'm going to go to Seaside High. It's just, it's just, it looks more like Salinas. Like I have to go to Seaside High, right? For whatever that meant. Um, And then I went to Monterey High and it was just so nice to be in one space that included everybody. Like that was really cool about that, that situation. Um, So I learned a lot about myself. I would say in those three years at Monterey High, um, I immediately applied to universities. I was like, I'm going to take off. I want to move. I want to get out of the area. Um, I got into all the CSUs that I applied for. I chose Fresno State. Uh, Right around, like, the end of the school year, I realized, like, everyone I had ever gone to school with ever in all of the A31 was going to Fresno State. I don't know what major outreach they did that year, but they targeted, like... New York City for us. They, like... (laughs) (laughs) They, like, targeted Salinas High, North High, Alvarez, Monterey High, Seaside High, and it was, like, all of Monterey County was going to Fresno. And I was, like, okay, if I'm going to move to really get some, like, outside perspective. I don't want to go to school with everybody I've known since kinder, you know? And so last minute, drove my mom crazy. I was like, I'm going to declare it Sac State. And she's like, you know? So we drive up to Sacramento that summer, and their process was a little different, and you got to wait until your financial aid comes. And my mom was a single mom at that time. She had gotten, well, she had separated from my stepdad by my senior year. Um, And so it was like, you know what? You got to wait for financial aid to come in to get a dorm room. 
and we're like, what? Fresno State, it's like you you owe, you know, owe November 1st. We'll wait for your your money to come in. So I just did the whole thing and prayed every night. And sure enough, my financial aid came in. I'm like, yes. And they're like, dorms are sold out. I'm like, <sighs> oh, like, yeah. Uh, welcome to heartbreak as adulthood. Like, no joke. Yeah. Learned it early on. So I had gotten into CSUMB. And I was like, I just need to make a decision. I'm going to go. I'm going to accept. Uh, but mom, I'm moving on campus. And she's like, are you crazy? Nope, I'm doing it. You knew that was like my thing. I wanted to get out. I wanted to be independent. I wanted to do my own thing, meet new people. I feel like the only way to do it is to move on campus. Otherwise, I'm going to stay in the same circles I'm in now with my friends who hung out around town and things like that. So it was cool. In 2005, no one was going to CSUMB. Like, no one was going to CSUMB other than adult locals who were, you know, wanting to extend their career or education after, you know, AAs. And it was just really convenient young, motivated, like, energized people were not coming to CSUMB. Was that big library even open by nope. then? No, yeah, did no. not no, even That one was open much later. Yes, yes. still drill instructors teaching the classes? No. Uh, it was like, it was, <laughs> let me just, I walked in and I accepted and they go, okay, what floor do you want to live in? What building do you want your dorm in? And I'm like, what? It was like walking into like a candy store and they're like, just pick. Cause yeah. they and this was like two weeks before school started. Wow. Yeah. So Can I live on the beach. I know. <laughs> so let's skip ahead a little bit. Why did yeah. you decide to run? So when I decided to run was after all of that. Started teaching in South Monterey County because I went to CSUMB for uh, my teaching degree and uh, mm-hmm. credential. And realizing how many people probably have the same stories as me didn't run into all the roadblocks of maybe having to stay in the three one to get their upper or lower division degree and and their their BA in general and how many weren't able to like come back and start a life here in Salinas right I got lucky that through all these things I ended up at CSUMB got really good connections in Gonzales started teaching there and then in Greenfield and was able to kind of. Uh, take my career path where I wanted it to here locally and stay. Um, but many of my friends didn't have that same opportunity. And and there's many reasons for that, right? Uh, moving away to school and then not being able to afford to move back. Mm-hmm. That was one thing with a lot of my friends who I talked to, you know, either going to school in Texas or going to school in Vegas or Arizona. Like, you can't compete with the housing costs out there in mm-hmm. this area. So it's mm-hmm. like, how do I give that up? So that was always a fear of mine was now as an adult leaving and trying new things. And like, I, what if I can't afford to come back home? Right. Mm-hmm. So that was one thing that really uh, triggered my interest in, you know, housing availability. We talk a lot about affordable housing and low-income housing and for essential workers and things like that. But what about, you know, middle-class, single-family, working families? How do we support those people as well? Not saying we have to focus on one or the other, but, like, where's the voice for that, kind of, on the council is what I'm thinking. Um, And then it ties right into education also. Um, My story of, you know, kind of going to Monterey High versus my friends who stayed in Salinas and um, either, you know, had tons of support groups or migrant work or migrant groups that they were a part of that were pushing them into outreach programs and things like that, where I went to Monterey High, I was part of the sports academics committee and all those things. And so I had all this handed to me. Um, What are we doing in the city of Salinas to make sure we are like handing things to all of our students, you know? Um, So really wanting to build stronger partnerships with our city and our school districts in Salinas, because teaching in Gonzales and in Greenfield and going to school in the most integral years of high school in Monterey High, I saw how those cities stepped in to supplement those opportunities. Mm -hmm. 
And I just feel like too often the narrative here is not to place blame on either side, but I think that um, it's an adult responsibility in general in the city of Salinas to make sure that we're providing the absolute most rigorous and robust opportunities for our students of Salinas because they're our residents, you know? There are future contributors, our future voters. Um, we have to be able to uh, have a capacity to support them in their goals. And then most importantly, circling back to what I mentioned before, welcome them back. Right. Yeah. Did you mention what, you, what you're teaching? What grade? What, um, uh, right what? now I'm teaching fifth grade in Greenfield, Greenfield Union School District. Okay. Okay. I was in Gonzales. I started my career there, subbing as an undergrad, started teaching third grade there. I uh, was there for over the whole time, six years, and this is my third year in Greenfield. Yes. Excellent. Thank you. So, But to me, city council is a really ambitious position. To it's like, yeah, so, some people might be like, well, yeah, there's a lot of commissions out there yeah. and, and, and groups. Mm -hmm. um, what? Why did you feel that you did, went like, no, I need to go to the city council? council. Perfect yeah. question, yeah. Yeah, because even in this race, like, running and talking to people, like, oh, you're, like, an amazing candidate for school board. And I'm like, yeah, no. Like, I do feel like as an educator, I have a lot of influence already over what happens kind of locally just through, like, my presence or or um, people knowing of the things that we're doing in Greenfield or Gonzales, I can still outreach to like other local districts and within the city and help in that capacity. I don't feel like I need to be a governing school board member to really impact change locally because teachers are really um, determined to do those things on their own if you, if you have support and collaboration. Um, but also with CTA, the California Teachers Association, I'm a huge leader in that capacity in our local and in our... Um, region so through them i've been able to be on state council which is kind of like teacher congress so it's state council for education and that's really where we meet in la twice a year in october and january and we talk about all of the things that we are going to push at the state level that impacts education so one of the most notable things that was done at state council was taking our teacher retirement funds out of private prisons like we literally were supporting the school to prison pipeline at some point yeah. in some way, right? That if we're making money off private prison so that we can retire, how are we any better than any of these people who don't support education, you know, our youth determining prison beds by the time they're in third grade, whether or not they can read. We're almost like feeding into that. We're keeping that alive. Um, so that was huge. Once I got into that, once I got into that political side of teacher unionism, right, versus, like, the labor side, but the actual policy and legislation side, I realized, like, my voice matters. And the stamina and determination and willingness to collaborate and really get things done and, and have difficult conversations matters. Because I'll tell you, on that floor for state council, there was teachers who were like, whoa, 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 whoa. This is my future. Like, these are my kids. These are my grandkids. This is, like my family that this could affect because if we yeah. take it out and we don't find anybody else who can invest back in this for us, then we may not have retirement. So it was like when you started to look at, wow, we actually have teachers who are hesitant on bold change, who sometimes don't want to show up for themselves or their students, like who can be that voice that really pushes these things forward and is able to have those conversations with people um, that really makes them comfortable on making tough decisions, right? Uh, and then after that, I ran for um, 
NEA, National Education Association's Representatives Assembly. And so that is like one of the large, it's the largest democratic assembly in the world. They say that every time you go, right? Because it's where 10,000 educators from all 50 states get together and we negotiate the budget (laughs) for the coming year of NEA which is Lely Eskelson Garcia, who is at the White House with Betsy DeVos on a regular basis. So then this isn't your first political Oh, absolutely not. Though. Maybe like voting locally and statewide. You know, like I hear that like, oh, I'm an elected official. And okay, because the city elected you. But like I've run campaigns. I've won elections before. I've been in political rounds where it's serious voting. Um, absolutely. So I kind of explain to people like I started out here and I'm kind of just bringing it back in here now mm-hmm. because a lot of the experience I've had, I've realized like whether I can say like I signed this or I championed this um, is not important to me really on the things that I've worked in on with my colleagues. It's more about the experience um, and the knowledge of how to get things done, mm-hmm. right? Uh, how to collaborate with people, how to listen to people, how to get my ideas across, how to get buy-in. Uh, those types of conversation and that type of passion and understanding and ability to research and ability to connect the dots from all types of experiences that I've had from my life, my career, and politically um, are some of the things that really made me feel like this is it, like this is the time. So before we get into how you plan to get to those like votes that you will need and reach across the aisle and whatnot, um, could you tell us what do you think are the most pressing issues that that your district is facing? And maybe if you want to also talk about the city because there's yeah. you know there's two things but they're complementary. So absolutely, and that's conversations that we have a lot right now, especially during the selection, is you know focusing on the things that specifically impact District Six, but then also relaying to voters that. You know, as a council, we discuss the entire city. So, yes, I'm a representative of our district, so I do need to understand the things that you guys are most concerned about. But we also, as a team on the council, need to make the best decisions for the city as a whole. Um, I know my district right now, especially looking at Creek Bridge, there's a lot of concern with the new homeless shelter that's going up on Alice on, on Laurel. Uh, and I feel like a lot of the hesitation and fear around that shelter is the lack of information about exactly what's happening, who's coming, who's going to be upkeeping this. Um, So that is one thing that I actually am trying to work with Scott Davis on, regardless of whether I'm a council member or not, because that affects the people in my area and the people. My family lives in District 6, Creek Bridgeside, owns homes there. Uh, We want to know, right? And he's got a lot of information on that. That's his district, right? So it's like, how can you brief us? Like, how can you help lower the anxiety of the people in our area just give us some information on it you know um one thing that i'm hoping to do as the representative for district six is work with him in making sure that it's maintained you know that monterey county behavioral health and services are actually upkeeping the services that are needed to be provided for that shelter right because i think that's what really determines the success of the people who go in it that they don't stay long term that we can relocate them into more stable housing and, and positions, right? Um, I think what it will do, though, is hopefully send a message that we're willing to start to alleviate a lot of the other homeless problems in District 6 around the Creek Bridge shopping area, you know, around the river. Um, homeowners are really concerned with, you know, I purchased a house here. This is where I raised my kids. I want my kids to be able to, you know, to play in the areas around here. But it's scary. And it is. I'm not going to lie. I shop at that Safeway. And at night, you know, parking on that side of Safeway, it's a little 
nerve-wracking. We've heard the stories on Nextdoor app and on Facebook of, you know, people leaving the gym, Creekbridge Fitness, heading out and seeing shadows. And so I get it. I get it. And I get it because I'm a woman who shops there at night, right? Mm-hmm. So um, really trying to figure out the best, most cohesive way in a collaborative way to address these issues so that our residents continue to feel safe. Mm-hmm. Um also really working with like the police chief to understand you know the calls that are being made to the creek bridge area about break-ins or crime like where who are who's actually committing these um because i think that you know you know when we get afraid of things we're just like oh it must be this group or whatever and so i think that i you know my family on the south side as well has fallen into that trap sometimes of like it's the homeless it's the homeless you mm-hmm. know so really uh just having a presence and presence doesn't have to mean over-policing. Presence just means open dialogue and communication and, and transparency and, and showing up for conversations about what's happening around here. What do you guys understand is happening? What is your plan mm-hmm. to keep us safe in this area? Mm-hmm. And then, obviously, the roads. <laughs> Infrastructure, right? The joke of being pothole queen. Mm-hmm. That's what I've taken <laughs> on. <laughs> And that that was just a joke that no, just I, I don't even know why it happened, but, it's, but yeah, it wasn't. It's before it transcends this room. Trust me, it does. Uh, it, it's a it is a huge issue in our area. It really is. I Vermont. think it's a huge issue everywhere, everywhere. in the city of Salina. Well, and your district in particular has a really huge chunk of Baranda Road, Absolutely. which is one of the main roads on the edge of town, and it's it's mostly a two lane road for Absolutely. most of its. Again, that the city's going to spend a lot of money coming up on yeah baranda and, and that area and that whole expansion the future of salinas is northeast mm, northeast yeah well and speaking of that expansion that that's my was gonna be my next question you obviously have a lot of family here you understand how important that is to have family around you um so with all those new houses coming in what can the city do to keep some of those families here if i want to raise my children here is that even going to be possible once this construction starts coming in or yeah. again, what, what can, what can you as a, a city council person do? Yeah. So what I hope to do with that development, right. And again, this is as a constituent or a council member. I'd love to speak in both because I think that my advocacy for the city and the things that go on here transcends my even decision to run, um, is make sure that again, that is completely uh, transparent and the and the community has a voice in, in how things are being done over there, specifically with the housing developments, right? Um, making sure that there is a mixed bag of housing available there, because I think one of the main issues right now is that we don't have enough housing to supply the demand of housing, whether it be market rate, middle or low income and affordable, right? Um, making sure that we are not making decisions on the council that are going to just instantly say like, well, this is going to bring the most revenue or this is going to, you know, pay out for one group of people the most, making sure that that area can serve everybody. And with especially making sure that whatever developments go over there, looking more for housing, that they are going to take care of infrastructure long-term, right? With like impact fees, that they're going to set aside land for schools, and parks and libraries, right? We don't need any more just bedroom neighborhoods in Salinas. I understand a lot of people either move or rent to Salinas because they work in hospitality in Monterey or other areas in the county, but we need more livable communities, especially in the north side. Um, 
you know, in Creekbridge, a lot of those parks are completely ignored and run down. And the kid who wants to play outside the most doesn't want to play at that park. So that is going to be an extension in my eyes of Creekbridge and even, you know, McKinnon Park area. It's all going to be linked together. It has to serve the larger community as well. So whether there's libraries now that can be accessed by the Creekbridge residents and their families, that needs to be a priority. Um, the McKinnon and Hardin Ranch, you know, area, that needs to be a priority. Uh, and making sure that we have like community schools in those areas and and in fire departments and you know things that bring in local jobs because when we talk about adding those kind of services we uh, we talk about adding more jobs as well for not only just our students and our youth but adults who now are like okay I don't have to commute possibly to Greenfield or Gonzales or Monterey or Marina for job opportunities like I can work here as well I I got a question just from looking at at the map because of your district mm -hmm. and and for all the listeners it's it's what would i would consider the north side what mm -hmm. what traditionally when you think of the north side that is the heart uh, of the north it's, side it's, yeah. it's it's what that this district is and one but what it, it kind of it goes farther into creek bridge which is mm -hmm. a little like and it's kind half. of newer yeah. but i grew up on los coches okay. on, on los coches right on Natividad. And what was Where interesting? Where did you grow up, Osvaldo? I live on the corner of Los Coches and Natividad. Really? I grew, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I grew up Yeah, right there on, on Los Coches and Natividad, right uh, where Emerald okay. like, goes Okay, I'm down. on Tahoe. Yeah, Tahoe, that's what it was. Yeah. Actually, yeah, right there. Oh, my God, I'm the corner house. Really? So funny. Not, not born and raised, but just recently, like, you know what I mean, like in the last five years. So that yeah. was 690. Nice, 1702. Um, oh, okay. That's, um, but, well, see, one thing growing up there, Natividad is a huge six-lane road. Mm -hmm. If I were to go to on to east on Los Coches, if I were to cross Natividad, mm -hmm. it was almost like I was in a completely different neighborhood. Yeah. Um, and... and and it, so how can how can you represent both those sides? I mean, I, I'm assuming District 6 was the same at that time, but I didn't see them as like strangers or anything. Yeah. But really, that was a whole I went to Loma Vista for a year. So that okay. you know, that's why I would go to that neighborhood. Yeah. But it was like a whole new world. How can you foster community between those two neighborhoods? How can you bring them together and be like, hey. Actually, you know, on the city level, you are represented by the same person. Absolutely. So you know, how can you, I don't know, how do you bridge that gap? I get it because a, precinct walking, right? The worlds are entirely different from the other side of Creek Bridge to that same Loma Vista area you're talking about just to the New Republic and Arcadia side, right? And we're not even talking McKinnon or further down, Montclair, any of that. Just yeah. those three that lay back to back to each other are wildly different. And conversations I feel like need to be had about how did this happen, right? Because you go down Glendora, to Arcadia and there's like the the metal post at the end of Arcadia that look into Creek Bridge and it's almost yeah. like we're crossing borders of countries or something. Yeah. It makes no sense and it's visible. So it's actually it upsetting. was it was by design and I have a story actually that I heard from a woman who used to be in the traffic commission when they built uh Creek Bridge, the Creek Bridge developers or planners or something they did not want 
a road to open from mm. Alasal into Creekbridge. They wanted to completely close off uh, wow. Alasal from Creekbridge. And this woman who uh, lived in Alasal forever and ever demanded. That's why Freedom Boulevard ends, uh, can can all end in the independence. Uh, yeah, I mean constitution. constitution yeah. Because uh, the plan was that that was not going to happen. Wow. And she demanded that that happen. I mean, I don't know if there's, if well, I mean, and there's another one that is also my pet peeve, Tout Street, that mm -hmm. doesn't continue into the development that has, uh, um, it's north of that, is I guess it's Williams Ranch. Oh, I don't yeah. know if you know, Tout ends mm -hmm. on freedom, yeah. right? Yeah. Because the people who developed that area did mm -hmm. not want the people from Tout and Alasal to be crossing over. It is very intentional. Very intentional. And I think it's the same thing for Los Coches and yeah. Arcadia. Yeah. It's blocked. There's no through street there. Yeah. And then it just becomes problematic when you go to the other side of Arcadia across Natividad on mm -hmm. the other side of Santa Fe by New Republic. Again, an entirely new world. Yeah. Over there in, um, you know, Los Coches down to the left is still a little similar to across the way. But all the new development looks entirely different yeah. Yeah. than any of the existing development. And I think what needs to happen again is I am a huge proponent of like, in order to rid past discrimination, we need current discrimination, period. And in order to rid current discrimination, we need future discrimination. Because all of our policies and procedures could, should create equity not continue to create inequities. And I think that's exactly what's happening in these areas. When you look at not upkeeping the sidewalks on that other side of Natividad at all, like let's just talk about that. There was an entire area there um, that is like taped off on the sidewalk. I don't know if a resident did it because they were like, you, like you're gonna die if you walk over this and fall. You can't even walk on those sidewalks, not because it's dangerous, but because it's literally roped off. So then you talk about the value of their homes, right? And the property tax they're paying. And then what goes into Loma Vista? Like, that's a problem. Mm -hmm. And then you look at the other side of Arcadia and Chelsea Way and all those streets and New Republic. And so it's absolutely creating inequities. And I think another huge part of that is our planning and permit department, though, as well. I have a cousin who lives in Laurelwood who's been trying to do an upgrade on his home for a second level for like five years. And for whatever reason, the hauling on his planning has had him have to do new data consistently, which is costing him money. So now he can't update the value of his home. It's holding him back. It's holding property tax back, revenue, all of these things, right? So we do need, uh, I think in general, the city's planning and de permit department to completely be rehauled. And new accountability, strict guidelines because that's affecting sidewalks that's affecting the new development that's affecting home improvements that's affecting just the potholes getting fixed you know what i mean uh when we think of just developmental plans i know you're a city planning guy that's like yeah. your thing he likes yeah. that uh, <laughs> <laughs> um when we think about it right if developers come and they you know delay on their plans there's a fine there's mm -hmm. things that they have to be like why are we not holding our city planning and permit department this accountable mm. So how many lifetimes do you have to complete this project? <laughs> Just out of curiosity. Well, starting with four years. Uh, <laughs> and that's funny because that is something that people have said like, well, God, this sounds so good. But like how I, I don't know about the timeline. Can you get all these things done? Um, I think that really I, I think that it, all decisions made. Right. I think recently there was the decision about background checks on ice cream truck drivers, which to me was insane. That was like today. And, you know, Scott Davis was obviously in strong opposition against it. 
which I agree with because I'm like, where's the data that these ice cream truck drivers are posing threats to children that we need background checks for them? To me, it goes right back to the harassing street vendors, making it more difficult for people to make a little livelihood around here, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, and you're going to directly impact District 1, Mm -hmm. right? Um, what are we, where's the voice right that's my thing I, yeah. I think my real thing for I the hadn't council, even heard about that one that was today yeah. that was today my thing is what is where's the voice for that where's the voice of experience and reason and empathy and connection to the community when these things are happening like I know, you know, Scott obviously is very connected to his region and understands like, you know, as a sheriff as well that, you know, there's data around crime. And so if it's if it's if it's about crime that we're driving these policies that we're going to put in place that might affect somebody's income or livelihood, where's the information there? So that was nice. But I think, again, in talking about the permit department center, I think if every other Tuesday it's consistently something on the minds of the council, like we're not going to let this go. Because it's not about what we're demanding you to do or I need you to snap your fingers, but it's like, let me be the one to consistently remind you who this affects, Mm -hmm. like all the time, and why who this affects affects our city as well. And, you know, um, it's interesting that that you're talking about that because I think that there was a question that we have, and I'm going to kind of back into it because Mm -hmm. you're mentioning it. It's like, what can this city do to help citizens and and even business owners, people who are Mm -hmm. struggling right now because of the pandemic? Yeah, absolutely. So I love that we waive the land use fee, right? There's those options and flexibility for small businesses to use sidewalks and outdoor spaces and parking lots right now so that they can continue to do service. But every time I visit a small business right now, I'm looking around like there's certain things that COVID's done that I think can really elevate foot traffic in certain spots in Salinas. So why not just allow this to be something normal now? It's going to, even after the pandemic's cleared and you're allowing businesses to open up indoor, allow them to still do business outdoor, right? Allow them to- I'll vote for that. Right? Allow them to expand their areas of usage. And we, I mean, it might be because of global warming, so I don't want to say, like, we've had amazing weather. But, I mean, you just know, sitting outside, the ambiance and the feelings you get by sitting outside and- connecting with nature that's like a mental health thing as well it makes you feel so parisian yes like you're just not even in salinas anymore you get to enjoy the mediterranean climate more and like all no 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 no. you should say you're in salinas the new salinas yeah the new salinas right like let's reimagine what it's like to just spend time outdoors in salinas right and i think that all ties into just uh unity Right. Bringing communities together, like you mentioned about the two sides of Natividad, bridging gaps and and creating more equity and bringing people together. I I personally feel like the small businesses around here have done amazing in keeping up morale at their restaurants and providing, you know, uh, essential services to people. And we have to really applaud that and not forget that after COVID and allow them to still do business in ways that kept them afloat and then help them make up for the revenue they've lost. So if we're going to reopen indoors, keep outdoors open as well, allow them to still use that space and let them make double their money. You know, like we can't be greedy. We can't be talking about profit over people. We absolutely have to look out for those businesses. And so that's the one thing that's just been plugging my mind for like the last two months as we start to come into, you know, the nation saying we're out of the woods. I can already see it coming, whether it's premature or not. Um, How is the city going to respond to that? And are they going to go back to business as usual? Because one thing I think that we can't do is that we can't go back to business as usual. And even if it's not for public health, just for recovery, 
right? We have to be willing to look outside the box and really just be flexible and saying like, let's bring it to a vote then. Let's just, what do the people think? What do we think? Is this going to be something permanent? Can we do this long term? Is it sustainable? How is it going to benefit small businesses? That has to be at the forefront of decisions that we make moving forward. And I want to ask a little, little more personal question, but um, growing up, what books or people or situations influenced the person that made you who you are now? That's so interesting. I, I really love that you asked that question because growing up, I feel like I didn't really have representation. So, and that may just be coming from being biracial, that I didn't see a lot of people who looked like me doing a lot of really cool things other than, I guess, being like civil rights leaders. And I was kind of like, I have a big voice, but I wasn't super confident growing up. I really wasn't. I didn't speak out a lot. Uh, maybe at home I was outspoken, but in public, not really, because I didn't really know where I fit in a lot of the time. Um, so it wasn't until, this is going to sound so cliche, but when I was in college and Obama ran, like, I'm not going to lie, honest to God, uh, I think just the way that he was able to mobilize people my age at the time. I was in 2008. I was 20, 21, 20, 25, 18, 21. I was 21 when he ran. So it was like right at the pinnacle of like, OK, I care a lot about a lot of things. I always knew I had. Um, I loved to read in general the news. <laughs> I loved reading the newspaper with my grandpa. And so I cared about what was going on locally and nationally a lot. I just didn't really know where I fit in. So being able to do like phone banking for Obama and like listening to his speeches and telling me that I can do it and that I matter and all those things that I think we really overlook in speaking to people and maybe it's because I'm a teacher and I do it all day long and I see how it really does change the life of students when you say hey no you can totally do this there were just so many times and for whatever reason my mom may have been busy being a single mom and everybody else you know living their lives it wasn't really told to me like hey do this or you can do this I didn't run into many people who wanted to kind of foster or mentor me into these positions and so representation mattered seeing people um of color i just say of color in general because i get all the time are you from like brazil like no one can ever guess what i am ever i get no one has ever like literally i've never met anybody in 33 years that are like you're white and black no one <laughs> and it's, it's black okay and white black and white way i say it but if you want to say white black i am with you, you. <laughs> no, you, you said it not that's me no. <laughs> You look, You could have looked Dominican Republican. Absolutely, all the time. Yeah, My best so friend in like, high yeah. school was Puerto Rican, full blood. Her parents were from there. They moved to Florida and had her, and they thought we were sisters. So, again, the whole thing of race being a mirage, I totally believe into it. But at the time growing up, there was not a lot of people of color in positions of power who, or who were inspiring, right, or who that I was exposed to. Again, I went to Monterey Park, Mission Park, and Monterey High, and Washington Middle School for the majority of my education, predominantly white schools. Absolutely. Nobody was worried about Vanessa seeing people who looked like Vanessa and sounded like Vanessa and cared about what Vanessa cares about. So it was really like an adult craft, I think. Um, and just being kind of un unapologetically minority, unapologetically black, having those conversations with my mom's side of the family that I'm not rejecting anything, but the world identifies me as this. And it is just power in understanding who you are and owning that. Um, and so in just kind of crafty, I don't want to sound self-made, I'm really not, but I can't really pinpoint my finger on who it was other than that election 
right? And that election cycle and the people that it brought out, right? Van Jones, Angela Rye, like all of those political commentators who were just like, whoa, we can really like speak up and be loud and not be angry black woman anymore or um, not be, you know, the ghetto minority who's just like screaming about things. Like you can be politically sound. Growing up, I was told I spoke white, whatever that meant, right? I had no clue other than to want to reject it, kind of. Like, oh, I don't want to speak proper English anymore then because it means I'm white and I don't identify with that or whatever that meant. To see these people come into the, you know, national scene who was like, this is normal. Michelle Obama, like, went to Harvard. They went to Princeton, all these things. And it was cool. Like, that stuff was cool. I was like, finally, you know. And so uh, working with my students in Greenfield and Gonzalez as well, I think that whole thing has been, like, a, a driving force for everything I do in the classroom, outside of the classroom, because I know how important it is to have that at a young age because I didn't have it kind of thing. So um, I have people who, like young girls who worked in my classroom in Gonzales who were ROP students or volunteered for us there. And they'll send me pictures of my signs around town and they're like, girl, just driving out and seeing this alone has changed my whole day. And I say it all the time, like, if that is all that happens out of this, like, oh, chills. You know what I mean? <laughs> that it just is empowering, like, young minority women to stand up, speak out, not be afraid to, you know, use their voice. I, can you make the jump? I like that you, um, so when Obama ran and, you know, he was in the office for eight years and mm. then he, the, the office was lost, but then everybody was complaining. He's not doing anything, mm. right? And and I, I, I think it's funny because it feels to me that whatever was not done it was because there needed to be some involvement well there sounds like there's a lot of involvement now mm -hmm. so how do you make the connection between that moment and now. this moment yeah. that is so many young people running for office and uh make the connection for it me. is you're right there and and in just speaking with people leading up into this election was like you know we can't, you guys can't, right, get bogged down in saying, oh, you had your first black president, he didn't do anything for you. What I say is we didn't do enough for him. We showed up in 2008 and 2012, but where were you in 2010 and 2014 or voting in primaries or midterms to give him, you know, the Senate or the House or whatever he needed, right? I think a lot of people who watch politics from the outside and vote during general elections feel like, I put you there, do what you said you were going to do, that's that, I don't care who's behind the scenes. And that happens a lot. And as an educator, I feel the need to educate people all the time, <laughs> regardless of not just on curriculum, but anything that comes out of your mouth, because I think it's important. I think that words have power, something our president doesn't understand. Um, and I think that the things that we say in casual conversation really shift the mindset of people who may not have the time to really do the research. So it's like, if you're going to speak, let's speak very factually and make sure we're not changing minds because I've seen it happen. I've seen people say like, oh, Obama hasn't done anything for us. And then somebody who's unwilling or doesn't have the time to research any of that, like here's that one conversation and will take it for truth forever and be completely turned off of being engaged in anything. So what I think right now is like the people like us who have been civically engaged for quite some time saw how that eight years led us to 2016. And the last four years have been terrifying. So I think maybe we've done a little extra work to realize like we've got to make sure people understand this entire process. And I know just some of the time that I've devoted myself to in educating people about the elections and the primaries and midterms is that it's your job's not done once the election's over. Like it's really not, you know. And I think that's another reason why I decided to run locally was because if I'm going to tell people how important it is 
to hold local government accountable. And it's something that I enjoy doing and it's something that I'm not afraid to do. Why am I not doing it? That's a good answer. And I truly felt that in my soul. I couldn't find, you know, because I had friends who were like, you know, the stamina you have to have these conversations with people and go on, it doesn't matter who they are and they could be upset and you just keep going and you never kind of break demeanor. Like why we need that. And I just kind of like enjoyed doing it forever. You know, some things that you enjoy doing, you don't like doing for a career because then you lose the fun in it or the passion of it, right? Mm -hmm. The enjoyment of it. And it's just, I think being a teacher, there's nothing like, it's one of the scariest jobs ever, to be honest. If, if people really think about it, sitting in front of parents twice a year about, you know, the one most precious jewel they have in their lives, you know, you can come across a lot of very scary conversations over 10 years. And I think I've just, again, built that stamina and that energy and that understanding. You to- know, it's funny that you mentioned that because I have a very good friend who is always getting into very heated conversations mm-hmm. on Facebook. <laughs> and I, I'm honestly terrified of Facebook because, okay. especially to be controversial, because then people will respond to me and I'll just yeah. be like, because I have Shut very down. strong opinions, uh-huh. but I don't want to have to be arguing them yeah. at all. And so I asked this friend who is, uh, yeah, I love him, shout out to my friend. And, um, <laughs> she knows I'll, who she is. I, 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 should I tell him, uh, you, uh, Trino, this is for you. Um, he, I asked him the other day, it's like, how did you do these? You, he has this very long post mm-hmm. about what's going on in the world, what he, how he feels, you know, mm-hmm. you know, the president's this, that, and the other, or <laughs> such and such person is this, that, and the other. And he gets into very heated conversations on Facebook. You know, I've done it like twice in my life mm-hmm. and I just feel drained, like totally drained. And <laughs> so like, I asked, see, so I was like, how do you do it? Because I think it's important conversations mm-hmm. to have. And when Absolutely. I've had the energy to do them, mm-hmm. I do them, but it's not very frequently. Mm-hmm. And so he said, you know what? Being a teacher, I had to learn. He is, he, he was a master teacher. He's not a teacher anymore mm-hmm. as, a, with, as a profession, but he said, you have to learn to talk to people and to really give them their space. And so I think that that's what I learn and I was like listening to you it's like oh my god the teacher I did I I have been a teacher before but I don't think I was a mm-hmm. good one because I, <laughs> I could have not done what you did so so kudos to teachers I love teachers I think yeah. teachers are amazing so anyway thank you yeah okay. no it, it's true and I, I I try to like tell people that sometimes like I think the two of the hardest jobs to be honest and there's a many more right but really when you think about like public scrutiny always all the times like police officers and teachers like all the time, telling you how to do your job, you didn't do it right, you're doing this wrong, and, and a lot of what we do is based on like data, and and that and the data that we use changes like this all the time. Mm-hmm. Every person, every situation, everything. I remember the beginning of my career, like palms sweating when conferences were coming around because you have no clue what this parent, you know, might have a disgruntled, like anything, right? So I think of that as the council too, right? And then again, like being on NEA and dealing with these other states of delegates and things, you have no idea what you're walking into at any moment, ever. But it really is about how do you react and then how do you solve? Like I, I tell my students that too, like it's not about what happens to you, it's about how do you handle it? And then how do you solve it? Like it's not just about handling it. How do you solve it? How can we change that, right? Yeah. Um, and I think a lot of just my life of, of you know, uh, misperceptions of myself or race in general or what I was supposed to be or represent or who I was um, really gave me like this fiery passion to like really get people to understand stuff like mm-hmm. a relentless mm-hmm. energy and stamina to push through that because mm-hmm. I think it's important. Um, and same thing you said, those conversations are really important to have, like I mentioned before, because if we allow people to continue to 
have conversations that are detrimental to us, especially politically. Those are the things I start to feel responsible for, you know? Totally, I get it. And I want to say something else, but before I do that, I want to jump into something else, change the conversation, because (laughs) you mentioned police officers. And um, throughout this series, I've been pushing for this project that my colleague, Joe Livernois, is uh, proposed. Mm -hmm. Uh, Have you heard of this uh, project? project called Cahoots in Oregon, in uh, Eugene, Oregon? Yes, I've heard not them speak, uh-huh. but I've heard their traction they're getting, and yes. I've heard they've made some connections with people locally here, right? Yes, so, well, so so my colleague, Joe Livernois, who's co-founder of Voice of Monterey Bay, okay. he put together a plan called REACT that is based on Cahoots, and okay. basically we're, he's trying, we're trying to see if there's some local buy-in to create a similar program here in Monterey Bay. Okay. And basically in the Monterey um, um county i guess basically the plan would be to use some funds to divert some of those calls that the police officers Mm -hmm. get to for calls that are not um you know maybe mental health related or drunk people Mm -hmm. or 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 transient people or something Mm -hmm. like that so that way there seems there so there's some a different approach of dealing with these types of situations. Absolutely. And so I'm wondering what you think about something That's like that. something huge on my heart, um, just because given the current climate in the country with um, recent events, starting with George Floyd, and then, you know, leading right up into Rayshawn Brooks, who was drunk, asleep in his car, you know, at a, rest- at a drive-through. So I think that, you know, one thing that's really important is to understand that okay, maybe we don't experience that level of police brutality in Monterey County, but why can't we have a system in place that prevents something like that? You know what I mean? We never know where we're going with any given day. Like I said, our two jobs, our our data and our interactions change daily. I think that that's what's going to put Salinas at the forefront of this issue is to be proactive and to take the steps that maybe aren't necessary now, but at least we have the systems in place in case something like that is necessary. And the reason I'm so bought into it is, again, because of being an educator, I would love to just do my job, right? The thing I went to school for, instead of, you know, being a mental health counselor or therapist or a family therapist, you know, I, we obviously wear the hats, we do it, but it is a strain on us and it is something that takes a toll on us. And I can't imagine finding a police officer who wouldn't agree that he wants to do just exactly what he went to the police academy to do, right? Instead of responding to somebody drunk asleep in their car. Or instead of responding to loud music all the time or fireworks or things like that, you know, things that could just per their training escalate on the most frivolous thing. Like it's just to eliminate that possibility, in my opinion, is well worth the investment. Right. A lot of people seem to think that. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) San Francisco does as well. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That they diverted their nonviolent, non, you know, murderous crime calls to peace officers or other professionals yeah. within the community. Similar programs are popping up. Um, just um, discovering uh, Oakland and Alameda mm-hmm. County. So, yeah. I think it's coming. Yeah. It's on its way it down. Like it's... So I'm I'm sitting here. I'm picturing myself as a, uh, if I'm a District 6 con- constituent listening to this conversation. I'm like, ah, oh, I like her energy. I, I like some of what she has to say. She has gr- great ideas. But I'm a little concerned that, oh, she she seems a little kind of like bleeding heart, you know, like uh, she just wants to be all, all nice and help everybody. <laughs> but the city is about to go into one of its 
probably toughest financial mm -hmm. situations in a long time. How can I, as a constituent of District 6, be reassured that you can make tough decisions? Mm -hmm. That, you know, sometimes you're going to have to make a decision that some people, you know, some people are going to be left out. You can't mm -hmm. help everybody all the time. Mm -hmm. How can I be assured that you will make that choice confidently and in my best interest? Mm -hmm. So I think it goes back to the conversation of really analyzing like situations for equity versus, you know, inequities, what is going to continue to create inequities. And I think that sometimes when we get in the social work area, which is, again, a huge part of teaching and just what I do socially, um, we can sometimes say we don't, you know, others might say, I don't want to do that because it's going to damage these people. But I think when looking at equity, equity is not equality. And I think that's definitely the big uh, misunderstanding in you know school politics and local politics and national politics is that we it's exactly what you said we cannot always say like well if i do this then we have to do this for this person this because in my opinion equality doesn't help anybody and it's equity it's who do we need to serve right now because who needs it right now so when i mentioned kind of like you know past discrimination solve or present discrimination solves past discrimination laws that didn't work or policies that were put in place that no longer serve the people that we need to or the revenue or the budget or the city as a whole to keep it afloat. Now we're going to have to switch to discrimination. Like, I think people are really uncomfortable with saying the word discrimination, but like yeah. discrimination lives everywhere we, we go. And it, sometimes it's necessary. We do have to say like, okay, slow the calls on this because this needs attention right now. Um, so again, I think that all of my leadership lenses have been with equity in mind. So right now, coming out of COVID, like I was mentioning, the small businesses, they are going to be the thing that keeps us afloat, right? If that means, you know, big corporations or other people are like, well, what about us? You're fine. They've right? gotten a lot of money. You're of fine. Cars, yeah. You're fine. So it's like those things. And I think that every single time we can reason that with, it's about equity. It's not about equality. It's not about we're giving small businesses this, so we need to give you this as well so that everything's equal. Because equality was the Voting Rights Act, right? We're giving you the right to vote. But can you name the 26 judges in your cat? Like, you know what I mean? So those types of things in the South, voter suppression, all those things. Historically, a country, our country has leaned too much on equality and not enough on equity. So that's just like a huge part of something I firmly believe in, like at my core. And it's just what's helped me make tough decisions because I feel like I can stand by them. My word and my integrity is really important for me. And so if I can really, really let myself know as well, like this is who's going to, it's going to serve who needs to be served right now. I'm more than willing to go to bat. So we are uh, approaching the end of an hour, okay. but uh, before we go, there's uh, at least one more question that I want to ask you. And it's like, what readings have inspired you to be the person who you are? <sighs> That's so, oh my God, that's kind of like Osvaldo's question, readings. Uh, so I'm kind of like a book nerd, but I'm more of like a, a young adult novel book reader um, versus like, you know, the self-help and those things. But the one self-help one that changed my life in college was The Four Agreements. And the reason for that was the agreement to be impeccable with your word. Impeccable with your word. Mm -hmm. That one, like every single day at all times, I come back to that. Mm -hmm. Because it what it's it, it just you know if you've read it it goes way deep into that it's not just about holding your word but to be very clear and concise about what you mean mm 
And to make sure that everything you say is, again, like I was just kind of telling Oswaldo, mm -hmm. like everything that you say is something you're willing to back up. Yeah. And so, you know, people sometimes don't say what they mean or mean what they say. So also in reception to understand that, mm -hmm. right? To right. understand that piece and to dig deeper in other people. Yeah. And so what I'm hearing you say is this, right? The, and I actually was asked to read that book in a cooperative argumentation class at CSUMB. And every time I kind of tell the story, people are like, cooperative argumentation? That sounds really cool. I want to take that <laughs> class. And so you would never think that that book would do those things for how to communicate. But it's true. The other one, um, to not take things personally. And that sounds so frivolous. But what it goes into is that to understand that what other people say to you is a projection of what they're going through sometimes yeah. or how they feel about themselves. That is a, that's probably one of the, the best teachings anybody can learn. Right? That, that what people say to you and do to you has nothing to, to do, do with, with you. you. It's not oh, my God. Yeah. 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 It, and it's really it's hard, really hard to grasp, but Absolutely. it's so transforming. And I think the way that he does it in the book and the way that he writes it over and over that kind of yeah. makes you really uncomfortable with like, wait, no, what are you talking about? Like, yeah. of course, people are being negative and judging me and these things. It's like to really understand that the process of thought is all about perception and perception is based on experience. And what have you been through? And so how are they perceiving the things that you're doing? Yeah. And so all of that is connected to what they've been through. So understanding people at a human level, like a very human level right. and allowing you to still do your job at that level. Right. Because I think that when we take things personally, we no longer serve people with our own purpose. Right. Right. Yeah, we can we can make things get in the way in that sense. Um, so, yeah, that book, man, I have like five copies of it on my desk right now because I give them out like every couple times a year. I'll buy like four copies of it off of Amazon and just hand it out like candy. You scratched out the author yeah. and wrote your name on there. <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually since we're distance learning and I'm just thinking like, you know, all of the things my students might be going through thinking of how I can put that in our reading rotation. And turn it into like an elementary read. It is a very easy read, I think. It's like, very easy. Yeah, man, it's very, very yeah. easy read. Yeah. You can finish it in like a day. Um, but I, I really think it's time to like bring it into the youth and and do some like research, like some actual novel study around it, right? Mm -hmm. um, but then other than that, like Esperanza Rising is one of my absolute favorite young adult novels of all time. Mm -hmm. Right now, Ghost Boys has my heart. Um, it's basically a a fictional story of like the Tamir Rice situation. Uh, yeah. And it was published by Jewel Parker in 2017. And I've read it to my students every year since then. And so you can imagine coming into this school year, uh -huh. thinking about when I was going to read that. And I was like, it's opening the year. It's opening the school year. Shameless plug. You have to read our fighting chance. Okay, got it. A fighting chance. I'm going to put that in my notes right now. <laughs> now the one by Elizabeth Warren, the one by me. <laughs> yes okay a fighting chance and the one by what is it called it's called um yeah a fighting chance a fighting author chance. claudia melendez hey. and uh and yeah heard of elizabeth warren anyway so, don't, yeah. you're, you're okay. so um so thank you for being here i think that that was the last question i have yeah. for you unless unless no, I'm, uh, I'm done yeah so what are you what would you like to close out with what's your um. last uh your parting thoughts my parting thoughts are um, that I'm, again, kind of want to mention and wrap up. Like, you know, most people will say, like, you're running for office. You shouldn't say, like, that would be the sealed deal for you for the moment. But I just look at things as, like, a continuous journey, right? Um, that whatever this entire journey has been for me has been so fulfilling 
in general, just declaring my candidacy, running, talking to people, listening to people, finding out so much more about my city that people weren't willing to share when you're not running for political office, right? And it's kind of like bummer. Like, why don't we talk more in general? Or why aren't people willing to come together a little bit more often and really uh, organize? Because I tell people all the time, we're not outnumbered, we're out organized, right? So it's interesting to see how this candidacy has lended itself to connecting with people and hearing from people. Um, and my wheels are always turning like, OK, how do I continue to keep this going and keep people engaged and capitalize off of this as a community? Right. So one of my parting thoughts to the community is like, don't let the momentum leading into this election, whether your driving force is the local change or the national change end. Because it goes right back to what we were talking about, the Obama era, like if we get a new when we get a new president in office, um, we have to make sure we continue to show up because I'm not going to lie, you know, the, the other side of the ticket is still a little nerve wracking. We still got a lot of work to do to hold those two accountable as well. Um, and I just think that we need to, you know, us who have always been involved, continue to keep people involved and really urge people to continue to show up and vote, continue to voice their opinion, continue to come to the city council member meetings, continue to get engaged continue to hold all of our elected officials from 2020 on out fully accountable and put your bid in the race. You run, show up, right? Uh, I'll help you. Call me. I'll share my tips and tricks with you because I think that's another piece too. I mentioned mentorship is a, I think we could all do a little bit more to, to help other people make it to their potential also in the city. Excellent. I think that's a perfect uh, way to end this and we thank you so much. Good luck to you. Yeah. Thank you for having and me. And everybody vote. Uh, yes, the, vote. The ballots are out there. Yes. Uh, you were Early supposed to mention the early voting today. Tell early your story. Early voting started today. So I went by the Monterey County Elections Office today, and they have their yard signs with voting here and the tents and everyone outside in masks and taking your VBM ballots and willing to have you know give you your sticker because you know there was a woman who drove up and was like we dropped our ballot out of the other place but they were out of stickers do you have a sticker and we're kind of like because you didn't vote if you're not wearing a sticker right like <laughs> just exactly. like it didn't happen if it's not on social media and <laughs> and the inside's open and it's empty for the most part but uh ran into a first-time voter middle-aged seemed energized and was like i'm here to do the work i'm here to show up and do the work so they're open over there off of Schilling Road. Um, they're safe. They're taking all the precautions. They've got social distancing in place. They've also opened up the side on the right for more ballot boxes. So it's. It, I think. I think we're gonna have a great um, early voting period uh, through up until November third. You still can register to vote up until October nineteenth in California. Text voter to two six seven nine seven if you don't know if you're registered to vote. Get that done. Um, but yeah, show up at the polls. Show up and show out, guys. Yeah, that was a cool story. But anyway, thanks, <laughs> thanks again. I was like, yeah, go out and vote, man. Go yes. out and vote. It's our it's our time to, again, to be heard. But yeah, thanks again for coming. Thank on. you guys for having me. Bye bye.